Hello, and welcome to Risk Chats for the Firm. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today, we're speaking with Doug Webster, one of the pioneers in federal risk management. We'll be talking about his new book, Value-Based Management, as well as some of the uh, current situation, the coronavirus, and some thoughts about risk management in that arena. you enjoy this one. Without much further ado, let's start the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we're happy to have with us Doug Webster and uh, of course my co-host Tal is here as usual. Hello Tal. Hey, good morning. Good morning Doug. Good morning Tal and uh, it, it is to be on here with everybody. Great. Well, Doug, I think today we're going to talk about a couple things, um, but let's go ahead and just kick it off with um, a little bit about yourself. You know, of course, you've been a, a firm founder and uh, you've been here since the beginning. So I just want to get a little bit about, you know, how, how did you think this thing was going to work out in the beginning? You know, what were your initial expectations for a firm and, and how do you think that compares to where we are today? Uh, let me uh, answer your question by actually starting a little bit earlier uh, than a firm. Uh, and I'll bring it back. A firm, which some people may know, was started in 2011. I'd like to roll back earlier to uh, even 2008 when I was uh, serving as the CFO of the U.S. Department of uh, Labor. I-, I came into the government uh, at that position and had a strong interest already in enterprise risk management, but did not see any national movement for the federal government in the area. So I thought nothing else uh, – being having the opportunity to serve in the position I was, I might have some influence in helping things move along. So I reached out to uh, initially to the acting comptroller of OMB and an individual at GAO, and uh, we had lunch uh, one afternoon, and I introduced them to the topic of enterprise risk management, and uh, hoping that I could get their support for some kind of a formal uh, federal government uh, initiative. Unfortunately, that, that did not happen. So I then began to reach out to others. And so Al Runnels, who at the time was the deputy CFO of uh, the U.S. Uh, Treasury Department, and Sally Ann Harper, who was the CFO and chief admin officer at GAO, I reached out to them, and they met in uh, my office. And um, we agreed that we would work together to uh, to try and make something happen with regards to the ERM and the federal government. We gave ourselves this unofficial uh, name of the uh, Federal ERM Steering Group because we were uh, an unofficial ad hoc group. And we added to that group uh, in the months uh, that passed with uh, with other folks such as uh, uh, Karen Hardy uh, and Sally, uh, not Sally Ann Harper, I mentioned her, but uh, Stan Bohr, who was actually the first chief risk officer in the federal government, who at the time was serving at Federal Student Aid. Cynthia Bitters, uh, Jay Ahuja, and a couple others, names that, that people may recognize. And we we decided to, to work with a, a local university, and we began to survey different universities and found that the first one we could uh, generate interest from was George Mason University. And we agreed that year to put on the first uh, ever federal ERM summit in 2008. And that continued to grow in, over the next few years, and then in 2011, we formally incorporated into a 501c3 organization, uh, Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management. And so getting back to your original question, that, that early group was really focused on trying to get the word out on, federal, on enterprise risk management, showing its applicability to the federal government 
and getting this moving as a, as a more formal initiative, which, as we all know, eventually it did become. Right. And, uh, I mean, again, that's been, what, 12 years now. And just even just going to the summits, I mean, you see just so many people there now. So, obviously, this thing spread like wildfire. But, uh, I mean, in general, were there anything, you know, what else have you seen kind of just in the government or, or I mean, obviously, OMBs put out some things. But, you know, what are the things have you seen that you're surprised that have really just taken off so much since, since 2008? Well, that first summit had uh, 80 people at it. And as you know, we've grown uh, many times since then. I think I can't claim that our vision at the time was terribly mature. We primarily wanted to get the word out and get this recognized as a formal practice. And we would all sort of join in and learn as we went. Uh, I believe that over the years, I've seen a lot of positive maturing of the concept of the RM and the federal government. Uh, but at the same time, some offsetting, I might call challenges. So on the, on the positive side, uh, we've come to uh, think of risk as more central, I believe, to management decision-making processes and recognize the need to take a portfolio view of that risk. Uh, the traditional view of risk management, as, as we all know, is everybody goes off in their little silo and worries about their risk in that particular function or program. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is we don't look at the cross-functional impacts of risks or risk treatments. We don't make trade-offs across those silos and how we balance risk for the benefit of the overall organization, the very basic concepts of DRM. I think that has grown significantly over the years in terms of understanding the federal government, not, of course, uh, for all people, but certainly as a, as a general practice, as reflected in OMBA 123 and so on, uh, we can claim tremendous progress. I do believe that there have uh, been some challenges, and that is along the way, some folks have jumped on to the, what I'll say is the ERM bandwagon, and really look at ERM as just a fancy new word for risk management. And that becomes a challenge because I do not view ERM as simply risk management. And sometimes that distinction has been lost in certain places. But overall, I believe we've come a long way since those early days in 2008. All right, so Doug, based on that, on that last comment, when, when you have these what this is what you call them, bang, bandwagon jumper honors. What is, the, as an obstacle, what is the impact on that, on the evolution of ERM at that agency in terms of how well it's developed and how well it's implemented? What, how does that end up playing out? Well, I, I think too often it, it comes back to people continuing to do what they've always done or taking half steps to a destination thinking they've gone all the way. Um, with, without a, an adequate understanding of the distinction between traditional risk management and enterprise risk management, too often it's, it, one has an ability to claim success when they've really not reached the destination. And I think that, obviously, without going into names, uh, I think that that can be said about some uh, portions of the federal government today. They really haven't got quite the vision and I won't blame that on necessarily malintent, but just a, a, not a complete understanding of what those distinctions are between risk management and enterprise risk management. 
Yeah, and uh, just another quick note. I mean, you know, Tal and I, we actually did a little uh, podcast before this one on, you know, to kind of summarize all the other podcasts that we've done about ERM. And I think we've really seen surprising uh, innovative ideas over the last couple of years that, I mean, surprised me. I mean, I think, for example, a lot of folks are really looking at data analytics to some tools to basically help them make decisions or to get, you know, the best facts that they can really get versus just kind of going on a hunch. So I think, uh, you know, some of these tools and technologies are helping folks make uh, some risk decisions as well. I would would say that those tools, one can make the argument that those tools are part of risk management and those are helping us do a better job of risk management. Enterprise risk management is really bringing that together at an integrated level. But having said that, some of those integration efforts may be, some of those tools may be focused on the integration itself, which makes them part specifically of ERM, not just a, a basic risk management tool. So, Doug, let's turn to, um, you know, you recently wrote a new book on ERM, and you've, you've written a, a, a few, which is awesome. Um, so the, the book is Value-Based Management and Government. Um, why don't you give us a little overview about that, and then we'll kind of dive into some of, the, some of the main points in there that are interesting for risk managers. So how about a little overview for us? Sure, Paul. Thank you uh, for the question. I, I will uh, modify the question slightly, if I might, to say the book is on something I call value-based management, not enterprise-based management. Having said that, ERM is a, a key element of that book. So let me uh, start off by setting the, the premise that we all talk about value. Every one of us, when we hear the word value, something comes to mind. And we would all agree that we want to deliver stakeholder value in our jobs. The challenge, however, is what does that mean explicitly? What exactly do we mean when we talk about value? And I like to think of that in more concrete terms about the interactive balancing of three things. First off is what am I going to deliver to my stakeholders? Now, those stakeholders in the federal government could be the taxpayer, the end beneficiary, Congress. You have a host of, of stakeholders. And those stakeholder interests are not always aligned. Many times they're in conflict with one another. That having been said, we need to be collectively thinking about what value uh, and results we can bring to those stakeholders. And so when I talk about value, I think about balancing three things. What are the results that I'm going to deliver? What are the resources that I'm going to have to deploy to achieve those results? Because every one of us, unfortunately has to deal with limited resources and we always have to make these cost benefit trade-offs and then the third leg of that three-legged stool besides results and resources is risk because if we don't consider all three of those interactively we can be trying to promise more than we can deliver given our our availability of resources or our willingness to accept risk and so one cannot say that any one of those three are predominant over the others, because sometimes we will go in, for example, and set a level of expectation delivery of results based upon how much risk we're willing to accept or how much resources we're willing to allocate. So it's an interact, interacting balancing of those three elements. That's point one. Point two is that this has to occur in a portfolio management perspective, just like ERM is portfolio management of risks, value-based management is a portfolio management 
of the balancing of results and resources and risks. Right. And, you know, I, I saw in there that, you know, you, def you definitely break out this, you know, framework for how do you balance all these things. Um, and, you know, I thought that was very interesting to see how, how, you know, how do you lay out, I mean, what kind of frameworks and things do you suggest to, to be able to balance cost, performance, risk? I mean, you know, what, what are you, uh, what are you proposing? Well, I'm, I'm proposing that if we, if we buy into the basic thesis of the need to balance results, resources, and risks, then we need a couple things to enable that to actually happen. One is we need the data uh, to inform the decisions. So we can't just talk about this figuratively. We need to actually have data that says, here's how we're going to quantify the results. Here's how we set our targets for results. And here's how we're going to quantify whether we achieve those targets. Here is how we measure our progress towards achieving those targets. So that's from the risks, the results side, excuse me. On the resources side, we need to set budgets that project how much we're willing to allocate. Then we need to have cost management systems that allow us to track are we actually consuming resources at the level that we predicted or do we need to make this mid-course corrections? And thirdly, we need ways of managing, of measuring and then managing risk. So as we move forward from the as-is to the to-be, we need to be looking at all three of these elements so we can be making adjustments real-time as necessary. Now, the second thing that we really need to consider is governance. Because while data, of course, is important to be making the appropriate trade-offs between results, resources, and risk, we need to ensure ourselves that that conversation is taking place across the organization, both horizontally, from silo to silo, function, program, organizational element, and so on, as well as vertically, from one level down to the next, and from lower levels up to the, the next. Because without this, we don't develop a truly enterprise-wide portfolio view and don't have the conversations necessary to ensure that these trade-offs that we're making with data result in the best optimal solution. So having these necessary conversations and making the needed trade-offs for the common good requires a much more robust and structured governance process than more, most organizations have in place. I will also add, tied to this notion of governance, there's a certain level of transparency that's required to be able to make the appropriate decisions at hand. And this includes both horizontally from one level down to the next and lower levels up, because requirements in an organization have to flow down, but the capabilities within the lower levels have to be informing the decisions and flow back up. Then, of course, we got the, the horizontal transparency, so where one silo is willing to share sufficiently with the other silos, and collectively we come together and make the decision that's best for the overall good. I think the other thing, Doug, that you had mentioned, too, is the importance of the portfolio view, such that, as A11 points out, you got to have the choices, and the choices end up being cross-programmatic choices or even intra-programmatic choices of how to get that how to get that highest performance, risk-based performance outcome that supports the decision-making you're talking about. Uh, that's correct. And we don't, unfortunately, I think we've traditionally in the federal government spent most of our effort on performance, uh, setting targets, measuring performance, and so on. The cost side is, in my view, 
been very constrained because we do a lot on budgeting, but we don't do very much on cost. And I will distinguish between those two in terms of saying what we truly understand are the costs incurred as a result of implementing a particular program. To the degree that we can budget for it and keep it within certain constraints and limitations, we do that very well. That having been said, we don't do good program analytics in terms of cost projections. Uh, if any of you are familiar with FASAB Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board Standard Number 4 on cost management, that came out many years ago. It's mandatory in the federal government, but typically federal agencies do not do a particularly good job of understanding the real costs of their programs. We look at costs simply in terms of spending categories, and so we're limited there. And we've come a long way in terms of the risk side through our ERM initiatives, better understanding ways to think about and measure risk. But we've still got a ways to go. So, Doug, uh, speaking of uh, analytics, so there's also some, uh, you know, you, you guys also speak to um, predictive accounting, things like driver-based budgeting, what-if scenarios. Can you tell us a little bit about some of that? Uh, yes. The, my co-author, Gary Cokins, is a, a well-known expert in that area, and he contributed those chapters. And it fit very nicely with the broader framework that I had laid out here and was the genesis for the book. So I, I've touched on that a little bit uh, by mentioning uh, FaceAd Standard 4, but I, what Gary has talked about in his chapters is an ability to really understand what are the cost drivers for a particular program and what are the sensitivities in those drivers to making changes that would allow uh, the generation of greater value. In other words, if we reduce a cost by, by a certain amount, but it has a significantly greater um, impact on, on reducing the desired output, we might not want to make that, that choice. On the other hand, if uh, a significant cost reduction would have a minor impact on the end result of achieving the delivery of products or services, then we might be willing to make that to achieve a better cost benefit. Uh, Gary writes in his chapters about about that, but uh, I'll just sort of leave it there. Sure. And another thing I found interesting, so, I mean, obviously, you know, change management, organizational change management, super important for uh, value-based management and risk management. You know, and again, as Tal and I do a lot of these podcasts, it's the same story. If, the, if they don't have strong leadership and culture, they just can't make these programs successful. Um, how about some, what are some of your insights into that? That is probably one of the biggest challenges I see uh, in enterprise risk management, and it's not because it's unique to enterprise risk management. It would also be a big challenge in value-based management, and that is that it's easy to write down policies and procedures. It's very challenging to, to get people to change behaviors when those pr procedural changes require behavioral changes. And we tend to see organizations where if the decision-making is in the personal or localized good, that's relatively easy to go forward on. But once somebody has to make a decision or can support a decision that is maybe in the benefit of the larger organization but not for their part of the organization, it's very easy to see resistance begin to, uh, to rise its head. So that's an organizational change management challenge. And I've long argued for the need to have transparency 
so that we can see how our decision-making processes are contributing to the greater good. And that is not universally the case in the federal government or, frankly, in any organization, uh, whether it's federal government or not. So that's great. So I, just in a nutshell, then again, um, and we have one more topic we want to cover with you, but as far as, as your book here, you know, again, what, what, what would you say would be of the most benefit for a risk manager in reading your book? What would be their greatest takeaway, you would say? I would say that the biggest takeaway is to recognize and help make the case that they are part of a bigger picture. And I, I'm sure risk managers already know this, but the articulation of value-based management, in my view, helps make the case for why risk management is important. It's not something we do because OMB says we need to do it in A123 or A11. It's something we need to do because it helps us in our goal to deliver stakeholder value. And we cannot do that interactive balancing of results and resources and risks unless all three of those elements are ready to come to the table and represent uh, their interests and, and engage with the others in terms of those necessary trade-offs. Risk managers can play a critical role in that discussion, and people who know and understand enterprise risk management are very well positioned to contribute to that. Doug, if I wanted to find a copy of your book, where would I find it? Uh, it's readily available on Amazon.com. I don't, I can't tell you what bookstores it may or may not be in, but it's certainly available online. It's published by Wiley, and it's easy to Google. Thanks so much. Great. Well, so let's go kind of to our uh, final topic. Uh, obviously, very timely. Unfortunately, you know, we're all suffering through this uh, COVID coronavirus uh, right now. So. I thought uh, I would ask your opinion on some maybe some risk perspectives related to Corona. Uh, you know, what what are some ideas you have on that? Well, thanks for the question, Paul. I think unfortunately, it, one can see in the current situation much of what I'm talking about because we are in an environment where we're trying to balance things that typically don't get brought together and discussed, such as the health of the nation versus the financial health of the personal health of the nation versus the financial health of the nation. And we clearly cannot have focus only on one of those. There has to be a balancing of those two. Now, where that balance lies is, you know, we can all discuss and debate. And I certainly don't think my opinions are any better than anyone else's. But I do recognize, as I suspect we all do, that we cannot focus on one while ignoring the other. The current situation is thrust itself upon us, and we are, frankly, in a crisis mode situation. But what we ideally want to be in any organization is forward thinking and not reacting to crises, but managing risks before they become crises. It's my belief that the coronavirus situation is a good illustration of what we, in a best world, want to try and avoid in our professional lives, in our, whether it's the federal government or a private sector organization or not-for-profit. And that is we're looking to what may happen in the future and preparing ourselves to deal for that future. A great quote that I like, if I can remember it correctly, is from Wayne Gretzky who says that a good hockey player plays to where the puck is, a great hockey player plays to where the puck's going to be. 
And we need to be thinking today about what our today's actions can result in in the future. And what could we be doing differently today to have a better future? As we think through that, we need to be thinking about those three elements of the value-based management framework. That is, what are we going to achieve or what are we attempting to achieve at some point in the future? What resources are we seeking to allocate to that achievement? And what risks are we willing to accept as we move forward? Now, that's not a one-time decision that you then press down the road and forget that you don't have new circumstances that you may be seeing. So we may decide that we're here in Washington, D.C., and we want to head to the West Coast, and we've got X number of resources in terms of gasoline and dollars for hotels, and we've got so much time to get there and so on. But as we begin our journey, we need to constantly be looking at what has changed from when we made our original premise and our original trade-offs. And how is that impacting us, and what do we need to do to redirect, such as do we have thunderstorms or, or tornadoes in a part of the country and we need to redirect another part of the country? How does that impact their decisions? So as we move forward, we need to be constantly reevaluating what we're trying to deliver, what's it costing us to deliver that, what is our budget that we're willing to allocate, and what are the risks we're willing to accept. And all three of those elements may be changing as we go forward. So I think the coronavirus situation is, is somewhat of a, of a good example because if you think back to where we were in January and February, the, the situation today is very different. But we've been informed as we've gone along the way. We've made re corrections and redirections as we've moved, hopefully learning uh, from our, our past actions and, and trying to get a, the best future that we're able to achieve. And so I, I see a lot of what we're doing in the coronavirus situation as reflecting what we've argued for in our book, Value-Based Management and Government. Right. No, I mean, that makes sense. And I guess one of my comments is I feel like, you know, when you watch all the news and everything, it very much seems like it's all crisis management, you know, what's going on right now, what's going to happen tomorrow. But you're not hearing much about what's the strategy for getting us back to normal in the next three, six months, a year you know, what What are some things, it seems like we're all just very concerned on the right now, and we don't hear as much about, okay, now how are we eventually going to start moving towards the future and getting back to normal? I've talked in the past about reactive management, and uh, pro, excuse me, proactive change, reactive change, and reactive change in the midst of crisis. And right now, I think we all agree that we're in the reactive change in the midst of crisis. And what we want to get to, to the degree that we can, is that proactive change. We're making changes now to prepare ourselves for a successful future, not reacting to this current situation. Because as we move from proactive to reactive to reactive in crisis, our options go down, but our urgency and the risk to our results goes up. I wanted to say I like, uh, I like the perspectives that you're putting out, Doug, because it focuses on decision-makers and the decision-maker outcomes, what the, just equipping them. And that's, that's better than the, the risk management focus, which seems sometimes when it's not done well to just focus on compiling the risk information without focusing on how it's useful to the decision-maker as they're managing the organization. So I appreciate those perspectives. 
Well, thank you, Tal, for that. I, I, I do agree that we need to be not looking at risk as simply a scoring uh, job where we look at risk profiles and say what our risk is and then move on to the next job. It needs to be our informing our decision-making process for the future, or it's a, it's a, a waste of time in many cases because we, the point of a risk is that it's the effect of uncertainty on objectives. If we want to assure achievement of objectives, we need to be thinking about what we do to whether we want to accept that uncertainty or modify it and how it ties in with our budget allocation process and our setting of uh, performance objectives. Well, Doug, I think we've come to our time here, and uh, I appreciate you joining us here. And, you know, I know it's going to be a little bit not quite as clear quality as most of our podcasts, but, you know, we're all following the guidance. We're all staying at home trying to make things work. So, but, uh, but yeah, Doug, do you have any final thoughts for us as we uh, go out here? My only final thought is that I hope everybody stays safe. Uh, and when things get hopefully back to normal sooner than later, we begin to think more proactively about the role of risk and balancing that with the results we're trying to achieve and the the resources we're willing to put to that. I think if we do that, the ERM community can become truly a fundamental key element of what it takes to make a successful organization. So I thank you for both of you for your time today. Great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Doug. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you all are staying safe out there may know our uh, show our podcast is now available on itunes google play stitcher all those great places so you can just download it to your uh to your phone or whatever device um and of course as usual affirm.org and uh, we're going to keep these podcasts going and try to give everybody a little uh distraction away from what's going on and some great ideas for risk management so until next time this is paul marshall signing off Wrist chats with a firm.